Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everybody. Because we will be cutting things short next week to celebrate Thanksgiving, that is, eat heavily, we have a rare double feature in store for you this week. First up are Britt and Dave Morin, co-founders of Offline Ventures, a new $100 million fund that counts no less than Apple as one of its investors. The Morins are techies, entrepreneurs, and investors. Britt worked in key roles at both Apple and Google before founding Britt & Co., a media and digital education company that focuses on accessible how-to solutions, creative projects, and educational courses for women. While Dave co-created Facebook's developer platform, co-founded a prominent social media startup called Path, and co-founded Slow Ventures, an early-stage VC firm. In addition to doing deals in focus areas such as mental health and Web3, Offline Ventures has big plans to incubate its own startups. Stay tuned for some interesting insights from two hardcore Silicon Valley insiders. Next, we cross the pond, virtually that is, to chat with Steve Tidball, co-founder of London-based Volaback, a clothing brand that claims to be designing its jackets and pants for the next 100 years. Steve and twin brother Nick are veterans of the ad industry, and their copy does not disappoint. Whether writing about Volaback's indestructible puffer, waterfall-proof parka, Mars jacket, or Ice Age fleece, the Tidballs describe in vivid and often extremely amusing detail clothes that have been built to survive in a post-apocalyptic world, whether here on Earth or, yes, on Mars. What was surprising to us was that it's not just hype. Steve Didball actually is a material science geek and deeply interested in building clothes that embrace technology. We had a great time talking to Britt, Dave, and Steve. We hope you enjoy it. Now, Britt and Dave Morin, co-founders of Offline Ventures. Guys, I'm so thankful that you could join us today. I was really interested to hear about Offline Ventures. So you formed this with Tonal co-founder Nate Bossard and with James Higa, who was a senior director at Apple for nearly a dozen years. How did the four of you resolve to do this together? I actually think the most interesting thing is we came together just before the pandemic started. Each of us was at a different crossroads in our lives Nate had started Tonal and had been doing that for a few years. It was going very well. And he realized he's more of a zero to one guy and really loved investing and incubating things and was excited to work with us on that. Dave had departed Slow Ventures and had been taking some time off after that, doing angel investments, but wanting to get back into the game, both as an entrepreneur and investor. I had been running Britain Co. for nearly a decade and saw from all of my years in raising venture capital that only 2% of venture funding goes to women and felt like the best thing I could do to support my mission of helping women rise is to actually fund them. So I wanted to get into the game. And James had been at Index Ventures after almost 30 years of reporting to Steve Jobs and several years at Index Ventures and has been a longtime friend of ours and also wanted to to join in. So the four of us are not just investors, but also entrepreneurs. And we thought 
we want to do venture capital differently this time around. And were you all, I imagine, friends before this or had you maybe in deals previously together? Yeah, we've done uh, quite a bit of investing and co-investing together. Obviously, Dave and I have co-invested together for a while now. But Nate and James, we've known for over a decade and have been in many different deals together I know that Dave and James participated in Robin Hood and a few others together. Nate and I and James have also done several deals together. So we already had a little bit of a track record. We had different networks, but we also liked a lot of the same things. And most importantly, we really believed in a new kind of venture capital that was never shown to us before. I think the other thing to add is that James and I would be at Y Combinator and see each other in the back of the room and point at each other and be like, you're doing that one, right? And we'd always <laughs> be working with the same founders. And so that was also, I think, very interesting. And then Nate and I have actually been taking groups of founders skiing and snowboarding in the backcountry of British Columbia for a decade now. We've actually done 10 trips of 50 founders and wow. friends of ours up to the British Columbia and then similarly, James and I, and James and Britt and I, we've been taking founders to Japan together for several years to teach them about design and Zen philosophy and meditation and learn all of the places that Steve Jobs learned those things. And so we've been doing that for years together as well. And so that was actually a big input into also what we named the firm. There seems to be a big emphasis on the mental health of founders. Does that come from your own personal experience in founding companies? The answer to that is yes. But also when I sold Path in 2015, about three, three or six months later, Britt and I started a foundation called Sunrise. And Sunrise has a very simple mission, and that is to try to find the cure for depression and all forms of mental health. And so we've been funding the basic science of mental health for now, it's been close to seven years. And we've participated in some of the most foundational scientific studies of mental health and mental health treatments over that time period. And through that have become very passionate about both the science of it, but also the reduction of suffering and people all around us. But given that our primary work is to work with founders. And we've been them before. And we've been there in the dark night of the soul that many founders end up in. And definitely even further, as we started this foundation and started talking about and advocating for mental health more directly, it just came out of the woodwork everywhere. And so it became very hard to ignore this, frankly, pandemic in Silicon Valley, which is broadly ignored. And it's getting better most certainly, but it's something that we wanted to not just talk about, but really try to drive into the core of what we're doing. That's interesting. So I know that you've made some related bets and it sounds like maybe this isn't just telemedicine. What more specifically is interesting to you and you think impactful right now? Well, as you said, telemedicine was already moving pretty quickly before the pandemic. I bet on a company in the last Slow Ventures Fund called Brightside, which was a telemedicine company for depression. They've seen dramatic acceleration and success through the pandemic, for example. And then here at Offline, we've also invested in a telemedicine company called Done First. They just shortened their name to Done. 
but they focus specifically on ADHD telemedicine and also just improving the accessibility of ADHD medications because they're extremely hard to manage. And the laws around how to access those medications are quite literally in contrary to the skill sets that people with ADHD minds have. We've also focused on healthcare system level enablement. So we've got a company called Ozmind, which provides an EHR to psychiatrists that is world-class, I would argue, the best EHR in the market for mental health practitioners. And they also specialize specifically in EHR workflows for psychedelic therapy, which is the most important new tool in the toolkit for psychiatrists. And so that's another category. And then we also focus on direct therapeutics. We've got a company called Gilgamesh, which is a medicinal chemistry team from Columbia University and uh, traditional pharma. And they're using both software and traditional medicinal chemistry methods to uncover new therapeutics and treatments, some of which are in the psychedelic class, some of which are novel molecules. And then I would say the fourth category is what we think of as digital drugs or digital therapeutics. Meditation apps, actually the year before the pandemic, were the largest category in the app store. We think that pretty much proves that just like after World War II, when we shifted from working with our bodies all of the time before World War II, after World War II, the gym and the gymnasium became something in U.S. society that had never existed before. And so we see this epidemic of social media generating uniquely bad mental health states being balanced by the meditation apps being downloaded almost as much. Today, those apps are largely a bunch of podcast audio files organized into an interface. But we think that within the next 10 years, you will see things that are much more akin to a remote control button that helps you shift your brain and body somatic state using digital technology. We're also focused on uncovering those kinds of use cases as well. That's really interesting. And I note that Apple is one of your investors. Was that one of their motivations in investing to integrate that mental care interface into their devices? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the projects that we worked on philanthropically before Apple became our partner with Offline was over at Sunrise, we put together Apple and UCLA. UCLA has the largest genetic study of depression and mental health going on in the world that we know of. They're doing a 10-year study of 100,000 people, 10,000 people per year that's looking at the genetics as well as the behavioral characteristics, and actually trying to find an objective measure of mental health for the first time. A lot of people don't know this, but all mental health diagnoses are subjective. They're a bunch of symptoms that psychiatrists and psychologists have agreed upon and then named, and they have no biological basis and no objective tests. Psychiatrists are actually the only doctor that can prescribe a medication with no diagnostic test to show whether it's working or not. Britt and I have been involved with UCLA for many years in this study. It's called the Depression Grand Challenge. And the goal there is to look at genetics and then use digital technology as an overlay to try to understand, okay, for this diagnosis that we call depression or bipolar or ADD, can we uncover areas in the genome that we might be able to find matches for? For a long time before we put Apple together with UCLA, they were just working with the engineering department to create a wristband that would look at galvanic skin response. And then we brought Apple and UCLA together. And so now Apple is the technology partner for that study. As we began working on offline and we're thinking about who our big partners should be, we looked at the big five 
it was really clear to us which one had a strategic priority on health, and it's Apple. I mean, they haven't been bashful about this. The watch project, in many ways, is a health project. So can we expect the Apple Watch to be asking us whether or not we're depressed in the near future? And what privacy questions does that raise that a company like Apple is monitoring the mental health of people that's using its devices? No, you wouldn't expect that to happen anytime soon. The study is 100% opt-in. It is just for the people who are part of the study. And really, they're looking at that question, whether or not it's possible to use data and sensors as a component of finding mental health diagnoses. And there's many studies outside of UCLA that have shown that just through very simple signals that aren't even that complex, you actually can find mood and behavioral data that help people who suffer from these receive an intervention faster. UCLA has actually seen dramatic improvement in their student population just by offering digital CBT that is based on a bot, not even working directly with a therapist. Just yesterday, there was a big study that came out that there were over 100,000 either suicides or overdoses on opioids alone Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And if you could just help people find the right resource 50% faster than they do today, you might save millions of lives. That's the way to think about it. And I think that one of the nice things about how Apple thinks about the world is your data is your data. So Apple being an anchor investor, I thought was pretty intriguing. Is it the biggest investor in the fund? I don't think we can actually comment on who's the biggest investor in the fund, unfortunately. Is it uncommon for Apple to be an LP in a venture fund? I've long wondered if we'd ever see Apple Ventures and answer to GV or capital G over at Alphabet. And maybe why, given all the money that Apple has, they haven't set up a similar venture. No, it's not common. They have invested in a few funds. The bigger funds, such as SoftBank and TPG, I think, has one that they recently did that's related to climate. And then earlier this year, they also did a wonderful thing in investing in several BIPOC venture funds, as well as working, I believe, with Howard University to establish some fund-related things related to their endowment. But this is unique in terms of relationship. I think it comes from, frankly, just decades of relationships and trust and being able to speak the language and work with them in a a way that they can trust. Dave, this is a little bit of field, but related. You were also an early employee at Facebook, and I just wondered if there's any chance they're an investor and also whether Facebook ever serves as an LP in select venture funds. No, they are not. And I don't know the answer to the second question. Okay. I also thought it was interesting that you both had started three rolling funds previously. I read in Forbes that this was sort of like a springboard into this more permanent fund. Because I'm guessing other listeners and readers are interested in doing something similar, could you walk us through the mechanics of how that worked? First, maybe why three funds instead of one? And then what happened to the stakes in the companies that you funded with those rolling funds if they're now a part of offline ventures? I can jump into that one. So our first fundraising meeting, I believe, was February 28th, 2020. (laughs) It went quite well. And then two weeks later, everyone put their pencils down in the LP world. And we are entrepreneurs and saw so much opportunity because when something like a pandemic happens, systems break, habits break, and new solutions need to be created. So we definitely did not want to sit on the sidelines waiting for people to feel reassured about the market and the world. We wanted to start investing as quickly as possible. Naval from AngelList, who's a friend of ours, led us into one of the earliest access points of the rolling fund technology on AngelList, which effectively means you have a new fund every quarter. 
your LPs are basically subscribers. They can stop, increase, or decrease their subscription every quarter. And you basically invest out of whatever pot of money you have during that said quarter. So we did three quarters of rolling funds, Q2 to Q4 2020, while we were waiting for the world to come back online and more traditional LPs to feel confident in the venture ecosystem and the markets and everything else. And during that time, we invested close to $5 million in a couple dozen companies that we continue to be investors in. We're, we're often doing pro rata or putting in more money from our new larger core fund, but really excited about the impact of those companies even just within a year. I think those funds are already seeing very high multiples even just within 12 months. Guys, I know that personal health is also an area of interest, which makes a lot of sense. Are you interested in more connected fitness type bets because of Nate? Yeah, totally. Part of the interesting aspect of offline is that 80% of the fund is for investing and writing those early stage checks. And 20% is for incubating and building out new ideas. One of our first incubation projects was just kickstarted slightly before the fund existed, but we've now invested and brought it into the fund is called Ancient Ritual. The best way to describe it is a multi-sensory connected sauna. And Nate is the one that has incubated this project. There are now whole teams on it, but we have more information to come on that. And you can just see a landing page on the website, but that is one that we're really excited about. And we hope to do more of these types of things. We definitely aren't afraid of connected hardware. We invested in a company called Arc that's doing electric boats. We've looked at a variety of other connected fitness devices. And certainly because of the success of Tonal, are big believers, but we also know how hard hardware can be and how important it is to have the right teams, the right prototypes, the right funding mechanisms in place from the very beginning. Yeah, we've also got a company in Berlin called Dance, which is electric bikes as a service and was founded by the two co-founders of SoundCloud. And so we're excited about that one. You list your focus areas in the press release as consumer, Web3, women's health, brain health, sustainability, and bringing the offline online. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by bringing the offline online? Is that connected fitness devices or something else? Bringing the offline online is related to everything. We look at big categories that have yet to fully come online in sectors like healthcare, childcare, energy and sustainability, government and, and politics. We've done less of that. Boats is an interesting one. Cars, all of those things are multi-trillion dollar industries that really are not being utilized well enough in the digital world that have not had great user interfaces on top of them. We saw how hard it was just to get the COVID vaccines and testing done and digitized. I think we actually had this pitch deck, like I said, in Q1 2020, that was all about bringing industries like healthcare online and investing in the next 10 years of that. And, and COVID certainly accelerated our mission in a much deeper way. One other thing to add is we believe that we are sitting on a Cambrian moment in technology and computing. Up until the last 10 years, we were on this mission together <laughs> that started with the personal computer, right? Before the personal computer, computers were the sizes of an entire building. And then Gates and Jobs tried to put one on every desk. And then after that, we put one in every pocket. And now we have computers in our ears that are more powerful than the Apollo mission. And we have them on our wrists, got them, we have them in our homes. 
There's a blockchain for everything. There's 10 million computer clouds. The world's filled with technology, but it's almost like we've assembled an orchestra, but nobody's written a symphony. I spent a lot of my time at Facebook building the Facebook platform and APIs, and there's APIs for everything. And yet it's still hard to get two systems to talk together. There's a lot of offline experiences. There are databases which are in computers, but barely can talk to the rest of the internet. And so there's still just a lot to be done, we think, to create great product experiences that actually improve people's lives. We spend most of our time fighting with technology right now. I don't know if this fits into that theme, but I'd seen that you made a big bet on Clubhouse, even spinning up an SPV for your LPs to get a bigger bite of the company. I don't follow Clubhouse so closely, but obviously it seems like it's lost some momentum. I'm just wondering, given what you know about the company, do you think it can recapture the time and attention of users? Dave, you were at Facebook. You started a social network path previously, so you know more than most how these things can play out. Short answer is yes. And so even when we were doing, we've done several investments and almost every time we've invested in the company, people were asking that question. And then two months later, things grew even more. Clubhouse fits into this theme that we're talking about. When I started working at Facebook, really all you could do to express yourself on the internet was type into a box using a keyboard on your computer. And then along came Blackberries and you could type into a box using your Blackberry. And then as the phones came online, what we've seen over the last decade was that photos became the the majority of the way that we expressed ourselves. And now it's video and audio. The way we look at Clubhouse is that it's the next one. It's a line of many new sensory experiences for social networking. And we think they've pioneered audio-based social networking. And social networking systems are interesting. They're like organisms that are alive. They People come and go. The pandemic certainly had acceleration effect on Clubhouse, but they've got a great band over there. Aaron Siddig, who's the chief design officer, was the chief design officer of Facebook for a decade. He's one of the best social networking thinkers on earth. And Paul, we've invested in before when he built Highlight. And we were also investors in Pinterest and he was over there helping. So we like to bet on people. And we think that you couldn't have a better team working on a vision that frankly improves the state of social networking. One of the most difficult things about social networking right now is how much division, disagreement, and misunderstanding there is. And that largely comes from the fact that we all use text and misinterpret tone and all kinds of things way too much. And so we also think it's a worthy and moral mission to some extent as well. Are you interested in incubating something to Britt's point about carving out 20% of the fund to start things in-house? Just given your expertise in this area, I wondered if that's a possibility that we'd see. Absolutely. And we're also interested in seeing a thousand flowers bloom. We think that Web3 is an opportunity to create a better internet and a better internet where the incentives of both the users and the platform or the network are more aligned and the incentives with the creators and the network are more aligned. We've been through this 30-year experiment together where we've built a lot of different internet companies and a lot of different networks. And in the beginning, we all thought that we could build more balanced systems where over time, the opportunity would remain equal, that the systems wouldn't overpower the user community, but we've completely failed. There's been no internet network that's been created in the last 28 years since Mosaic was launched that has not become either an advertising-driven system or a network that becomes asymmetrically powerful and can take real advantage of its users. 
The only one you can really point at is Wikipedia. We think that the incentives at the very baseline of Web3 are really extraordinary, not just from a business model perspective, but from a governance perspective. If you want to maintain alignment between these constituencies, you need something stronger than just a legal document that can be changed by the group of people who are on the board of a company. And so we think that both the governance side, uh, as well as the incentives and the ability to build new business models, mean there's a really, really clear opportunity to create new social networks, new information networks, new networks of all kinds that are more healthy. I, that's so interesting. I'm still trying to, frankly, understand what's happening. I think like a lot of people, could you drill down a little bit more? Because I'm still re- reported mostly on NFTs and creator coins. And I'm wondering what some of the business models are that you find most interesting. And also from a governance standpoint, I know that a lot of organizations are forming foundations, but I'm not sure how most of those operate. But if you can a little bit flesh out why you think governance is interesting in this new world, I'd appreciate it. Just as somebody who's trying to understand better what's happening. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things that we're most excited about. The difference between Web 2 and Web 3 is tokens. And just like the difference between Web 1 and Web 2 was people, and that became social networking. We think that token-based networks are extremely interesting. And on the governance model, to grossly oversimplify, if you set up a new network, let's say a new social network, and you issue an NFT project to start off with, you can embed the governance rights for the network into that token and give your users the ability to vote on proposals that might change the network, might change who works at the network, Really, you can structure it any way that you want. But the thing that's so great is that you can put the actual contract into the token. And that really changes the game because it makes it that without the vote of the entire community, it's very hard to change what the contract says. It embeds the actual governance into the actual network in a way that, frankly, just pulls it out of the legal document and puts it into the blockchain. That, we think, is dramatically more in alignment. And we've seen some really interesting things. One of the most interesting NFT project is this project called Nouns. Have you heard of it? Nouns? No. N-O-U-N-S? Yep. It's a really interesting project. They release a new NFT every day and you can buy it. So today, November 18th, it's noun number 112. If you buy a noun, you get not just the NFT itself and whatever value it carries, but you get one governance vote in what the noun treasury does. Today, the noun treasury is 14,857 ETH, which I'd have to do the translation, but that's a lot. I want to say it's close to $100 million. I don't know what their voting cadence is, but that means there are 112 votes as to what this massive treasury does with its capital. They're doing things as unique as donating skate parks to the kids of Philadelphia, to doing large-scale art projects and all kinds of other things. This is a very basic example, just an NFT project that also has become a DAO with a very simple set of governance, but has a very large capital base that they can go and do things with. 
So that's one example of a very simple way that this could play out. It just seems like everything that I'm seeing in Web3 involves asking users to pay for things that are non-traditional and interesting and could potentially rise in value, whereas obviously our systems now are closed and ad-driven, but they are getting these services for free. So sometimes I wonder if it's just a very concentrated base of users for whom this is interesting and they don't mind supporting these projects and how that grows. Because I do think people are lazy and they want things that they don't have to pay for, even if they're sacrificing their privacy. And Sure. I think of it very similar to when you're standing in the airport, there's two sides of the magazine rack. There's the ones that are free and there's the ones you can pay for. There's always been a difference in quality and a difference in community on both sides. And there's people who like one like the other and no value judgment other way. We've largely lived with the free side of the magazine rack on the internet for the last 28 years. In the last couple of years, we've seen things like Substack, and I'm on the board of Dwell Magazine. We've successfully turned that into a very profitable digital subscription business over the last several years. And so this has been a conversation going on for the last few years that while free services are good because you can create large networks and everyone can join, there are things that are left to be desired where perhaps if there was a subscription, which we've seen become very successful in software as a service and the enterprise and games, there's all manner of different business models. Games for years have had various subscriptions and games, people every single day buy a power up or a skin for their avatar. They don't think twice about it. They pay one or $2 for it. And you can actually think of NFTs as the same thing just for everything. 10 years from now, it's likely that every piece of clothing, every ticket you buy will just be an NFT. You may not even realize that that's what the actual technology is. That's just how it's going to be, digital or not. This is where the internet's going. I think the skepticism that you're pointing out is very real. And the cost of playing in the Ethereum ecosystem right now is extraordinary. It's far too high, absolutely prohibitive for the mainstream. And that's a real problem. There are other new blockchain technologies like Solana that are extraordinarily fast. They're efficient, really cheap. And if you look at any NFT project leaderboards every day, there's more and more Solana projects rising and rising. And so prices have to come down. Speed has to improve. You could argue that the only reason that this breakout of NFTs is happening this year is because the prices and speed have gotten to a place where there's a certain category of user willing to play on the internet. But we have a long way to go. I think Britt and I have said already publicly, we think of this like 2002. We're like in the Friendster era. right? Now. <laughs> that said, I, I want to jump in because I think what's important for me and, and a lot of my personal mission is that there's gender equality participating in new multi-trillion dollar internet ecosystems. Four years ago, I actually hosted a cryptocurrency conference for women and over 20,000 women showed up live and virtually. I think Bitcoin was five or $6,000 at the time. And only 4% of the cryptocurrency holders were women. Fast forward today, it's more like 20% are female, but that's still such a disparity and there's so much value being created. And I just really understand women after 10 years of building businesses around them. And I think what's missing, uh, to your point, Connie, is that there's such a lack of education. Therefore, there's also a lack of interesting access and getting 
first look opportunities. You hear about things going on first. You get to participate in them when the floor price is lower and it is more accessible. And then obviously financial upside and the ability for a lot of this world to feel accessible to everyone. I'm from Texas. I'm hoping for a day when my mom feels comfortable buying an NFT, just like she felt comfortable buying strawberries in Farmville (laughs) back in 2008. So stay tuned for more from us on that front. I'm particularly excited about a project I'm incubating that I hope will help provide more women with education, access, and financial upside in this new world. Right. I was actually one of the people who tuned in virtually. I loved what you did a few years ago. I thought it was really great. Thank you. I just want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the structure of your fund. There's been so much innovation with business models in Web3, and yet it seems like the BCLP relationship is remarkably the same. You guys experimented with rolling funds, but then moved to a traditional fund. Traditional funds, typically 20% carry, 2% management fee. Why not implement something like a token-based coin-based system for the venture LP relationship? It's a great idea. And people are starting to do this. If you dig around in the venture ecosystem, you'll hear a lot of chatter around improving LPAs to include the ability to hold crypto in its raw form, the ability to hold NFTs, the ability to invest in DAOs, to be a DAO. A lot of this stuff is being talked about very actively everywhere in the ecosystem right now. It's still really early, frankly. These are very difficult legal questions and structural questions. But I would bet that you will see this become a big part of the future of how these structures work. But I think there's still a lot to be figured out in terms of how you would do that. And I think that there's real cultural things to work through, too. Education is a big thing all across the stack, right? And LPs, GPs are still learning about all of this stuff as much as we are all talking about it on this podcast. I could see AngelList being one of the leaders in this area. Oh, no question. And Naval has been a huge leader in crypto for years. I bought my first Bitcoin in 2011. Naval and I used to do panels together about it five years ago, six years ago, or even longer. And so he's been a huge proponent of this. Even if you look at what Naval and the Angelists have done around rolling funds. They just rolled out this great new tool set on the founder side. I was one of the first syndicate users. I think I had the largest syndicate on Angelists for a hot moment. And so these models are all moving in this direction, right? Each one of them is a click more towards software-enabled venture capital. And, and, and so I'll even say at Slow Ventures, one of the innovations that we did there is we actually used AngelList to structure SPVs because I was doing an SPV, I think it was into Slack. And at the time, it was really hard to build SPVs, right? Doing an SPV was effectively booting up an entire venture fund just for one investment. And so one of the things that we did was we got our LPs set up on AngelList so that the next time we had an SPV opportunity, which I think the next one was Postmates, they could just click a button rather than having to fill out another massive document. And so I think Naval and AngelList have always been keen in executing into these areas. And I would expect that you're right. You are continuing to use SPVs, I think, with this fund. Are, are you continuing to use AngelList toward that end? Yes. <laughs> I also just wanted to ask, and I want to let you guys go, and thank you so much for your time today. You've raised $100 million. I'm wondering maybe when you close the fund and also because there are going to be 
more LPs who are wondering if you're going to be raising something else anytime soon, if there are plans for a fund two yet in, in play. I know that sounds ridiculous, but of course, as we've seen, these things are all moving so quickly these days. Yeah, I mean, the interest remains strong, but we have to follow SEC rules on that. So we're not doing anything right now. And if we are, we'll follow. You can't talk about it. (laughs) Right, right, right. Got it, got it. Okay. Well, Brett, Dave, really nice to talk to you. Thank you guys for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks for having us. Thank you. Take care. Forge the future of space exploration at TechCrunch Session Space, a two-day virtual event on December 14th and 15th with the startups, researchers, investors, and technologists making science fiction our science reality. We're talking space SPACs, in-space maneuvering technologies, and the people who are funding it all. We're inviting the first 20 Strictly VC listeners to register for free at techcrunch.com forward slash space using promo code STRICTLYVC. Hope to see you there. And now our interview with Steve Tidball of Volaback. Steve, we're so happy that you could join us today. Alex and I are huge fans of your company and expressly your marketing, which is so clever and fun and bold (laughs) that we can't help but admire it. So I know that you've started this company in 2015 and you've been in lots of media outlets before, but I still think that there are people that are discovering Vala back and would love to know a little bit more about your background and how you started this company with your brother, Nick. Yeah, so we launched the company five years ago. Before that, we've been working together in advertising for 15 years. So I think one of the reasons the marketing is more fun than it might otherwise be is that was our job. So you would hope of all the things we were going to be good at, the marketing would be it. Mm-hmm. We've operated by an incredibly simple rule from a marketing perspective, which is basically spend as little money as humanly possible. So, for instance, uh, a couple of years ago, we created our first piece of clothing for space, which was a a deep sleep cocoon. And, you know, in marketing, you always have who's your audience. And really, our audience was one person here, which was Elon. And so (laughs) we, we we found there was a billboard opposite SpaceX. And we just took out the poster there and it just said, our jacket's ready. How's your rocket going? I love it. And it just doesn't cost much money, but it's really great fun. And NASA called the next week and then we got chatting to them. So we really operate on this idea of serendipity of what's the most fun stuff you can put out into the world. And then the the world tends to come to you and do something quite fun. But in terms of the company itself, it's clothing. And the, the idea is really simple, which is in every industry, you could see someone trying to invent the future. And I just couldn't see it being done in clothing in a really meaningful way considering the stuff that's going to happen to us over the next century from space travel to disease resistance to climate change and sustainability. And you can see some of those things being pushed a bit, but you couldn't see one brand trying to tackle them all. The idea was really, if you work on one of these things, you're inevitably going to discover stuff that impacts on the others. So it's the idea just to bring one brand together that could tackle all of those wild challenges. For the benefit of the techie audience here, I'd seen you talking to Forbes saying the surface of your solar charge jacket, which I know won all kinds of awards, can be charged by the sun in the day and then glows like a firefly in the dark. Your black squid jacket recreates one of nature's most brilliant solutions to high visibility, the adaptive camouflage of the squid. So tell me a little bit about how you design these products and how much tech is really involved here. Well, at the moment, the reality is over the last five years, the angle of tech we focused on is material science. 
that's the one thing that as a startup we've had access to. Because if you're going to look at much deeper lying technologies like AI or exoskeletons, you need a really huge amount of funding to go tackle those. Whereas any startup can really go and look at material science. So that's the angle we're really fascinated with. In terms of how much technology is actually involved, a lot. <laughs> that's just the reality. The clothing market was a really, really funny thing to come into for the first time because a lot of stuff's really broken. There's a lot of tradition and a lot of things that people think are true just because they've existed for a long time, which obviously doesn't make it true. It just means it's a thing that lots of people have done for a long time. And one of the things that's typically not been explored is how much material science could go into a product? How brave could you be? Could you launch things where you don't know what the effect is going to be? And I think one of the most interesting things we ever launched that shows this was we did the world's first graphene jacket. And the reality is even the scientists who isolated graphene for the first time can't actually tell you what graphene is going to do. There's all sorts of possibilities, but you can't clinically say the market for graphene is going to be these. It can be 20 things, but what's the biggest? They, they couldn't really say. So Instead of saying, hey, we've got a graphene jacket and it does X, Y, and Z, we made it reversible. And we said, well, one side has graphene and the other side doesn't. So why don't you go out and test it and tell us what it does? We had a theory that it could store and redistribute heat because graphene behaves in a very surprising way and there's no limit to how much heat it can store. And what came back was two particularly amazing stories. One of a US doctor who'd been freezing at night in the Gobi Desert and he wrapped his graphene jacket around a camel it absorbed the heat of the camel. He put his jacket back on. He stayed warm through the night. And another friend of ours, Russian guy, was out in the Nepalese mountains. And uh, he's ex-military. And he was looking like he was going to freeze to death over one night because he got his path wrong. And he used the graphene jacket as a solar sail, absorbed the last rays of sun. It warmed up. He put it on as his inner layer. He credits it with keeping him warm through the night. Now, no matter how big our lab is, or could be, or how much funding we have, it's not going to have a mountain range in it, and it's not going to have a camel in it. And so one of the things we really like to do is use customers as guinea pigs and say, hey, we're not quite sure what this does. What do you think it's going to do? And then use them. So there's the two aspects of the science are we come up with a theory, we say it's going to do this stuff, and then we use our audience as a second part of R&D, as opposed to thrusting it into some billion-dollar lab. And how do you manufacture a graphene shirt or a ceramic shirt <laughs> Do you have a special loom? Do you make it out of a 3D printer? What's the process? Well, you manufacture it with great difficulty is the answer, <laughs> which is why our stuff costs more than regular clothing. A really famous example was Michael Phelps's speed suit from the Olympics, which eventually got banned. I think the Speedo built it and they'd had to build it with a special technology that could have no stitching and it just had to have glue. And so what you really end up with is very specialist factories, typically in Europe with really high-tech machinery that very few people have access to. And that's where you need to go. So if you were to say, hey, we're going to do vertically integrated business and we're going to have a factory in the same place as the office, you just need so much funding, it'd be unbelievable. So specialist factories with specialist machinery, but even then they will turn around and go, we can't do this. And it's typically when they say we can't do this that we start to get really interested because what that actually means is it hasn't been done before. It doesn't mean they can't do it. It just means they're reluctant to because financially it might not make sense for them, but it might make sense for us. So typically in those cases, we ask more probing questions and challenge them and say, well, imagine if you were the first to do it. Imagine you being able to talk about that. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? That's the game we've played over the first five years. And do you typically do short production runs for your merchandise? 
Yes, typically. At the start, that was really just a function of capital, which is we didn't have much. So we made as many clothes as we could. They sold out really quickly. We tried to make some more. As the business has grown, there's some stuff that we try to keep in stock all the time because we just know people want it all the time. But there's definitely stuff where it's so complicated or so experimental it would be reckless to make 10,000 of them. So yeah, we make short runs of some of our most experimental stuff just in the first instance to see, does it work? Could it be improved? There's no point making 10,000 or something only to find that it's got one fault and now you've got 10,000 returns. It's better to do a few hundred. So one of your new products is the Mars jacket and pants. Yeah. Where does one wear that? Well, what <laughs> <laughs> are Elon Musk? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the one of the funny things about making anything for Mars is that the irony, of course, is you have to test it on Earth. But the the reality of going to Mars or, or or any space travel is there's going to be an exponential increase in the number of people going there and the number of jobs they need to do when they go there. You're going to need scientists, biologists, builders, engineers, architects, and they're going to have to wear something. And so the reality is we want to start working on it early because you you can't just go, all right, we're, we're, the rockets are ready now. I wonder what everyone's going to wear. And so what we're doing is we're starting to think about some of the tasks that will need to be carried out, whether it's on the moon or Mars or lower orbit stuff, and think, what are the jobs? What are some of the challenges we're going to face? And this is why the jacket comes with a vomit pocket, because your vestibular system is thrown into disarray as soon as you encounter lack of gravity, and it makes some people throw up. Not many people have thought about the challenges before of what happens when you send a whole load of people into space and they throw up. And so it's like, well, you're going to need bags. And so we've got a vomit pocket. It's got vomit bags. We've thought very carefully about how that vomit's going to be stored. The human body's really fragile. And you're sending this thing that really isn't designed for space and you're sending up into space. So we're trying to think about some of the challenges they encounter. Now, we've been very honest with our customers. We know this can't go to Mars yet. We're not stupid. So we've asked them to take it to lava fields, the Arctic cave systems, and just tell us what happens. And if they manage to destroy it in the process, we'll give them a new pair. But what we're really interested in, how does this function in the most extreme environments? And are you cool with it? So let's say that 10 guys managed to destroy it. Well, that's okay. We'll give them 10 new pairs of pants. Now, it's all made out of ballistic nylon, so it's like incredibly hard to destroy. But if they do, that's okay. Steve, just wondering, how do you know about the vestibular system? Who advises you? I mean, you're a marketing genius. Are you also a scientist? I'm a pretend scientist. <laughs> well, you're very convincing. I mean, I'm just wondering if you have like an advisory council and you're saying, I think this could be interesting. And they're telling you all the ripple effects of what you're building. We have a lot of really interesting people around us. My brother and I try to collect interesting people. So whether it's people who think about the future of warfare or people who think about the future of space travel, we often joke that our business is run on WhatsApp and we try and have as many smart people as we possibly can on the end of WhatsApp. So we have friends at the MOD, we have friends at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we have friends who are crazy deep sea divers, kite surfers. And what we try to do is we try to have as many chats with as many people as possible, whether they're really, really extreme athletes or they're rocket scientists. And what we try and encourage is this idea of the adjacent possible, which is how many cool rooms can you walk into and how many ideas can you connect? So I think if you locked us in a white room with no access to the internet or friends, we'd have a very boring company. So I think even starting this business 20 years ago would have been very difficult, but we draw on a really, really eclectic wide range of experts and say, hey, would this be interesting if we did this? And then sometimes they come to us with ideas. Do you think that most of your customers are in adventure sports or SEALs or space travelers? Or do you think they are wearing your gear to a cocktail party and want to have something to talk about? 
<laughs> I think the reality is it's a mixture. We never really went out with a target audience in mind. I think the thing that does unite everybody who wears our stuff is they're really into the future. They really want to be able to buy a bit of something that other people will be buying in 10 or 20 years time. I think that's definitely the thing unites them. Now, the joke we always used to make was our customer seemed to be the person who had 20 spare minutes and taught themselves kite surfing. That was the reality. But obviously, as the market grows, you do obviously get people as well who want to wear a Mars jacket to a cocktail party and open up the vomit pocket. But the thing is, it's, it's really funny. I was always really fascinated of like, why should clothing be serious? And so especially as you start to look at some of the more outlier possibilities in clothing, you get into wacky areas, a hoodie that can help you go to sleep or a jacket that you can throw up in. Now, these are really, really unconventional things. The reality is they become talking points. But that's useful for us because in becoming talking points, we get more feedback. We then get people coming to us and saying, hey, I wore it for this, but actually it did X, Y, and Z. And so there's, there's a very big part of customers that become your R&D process which is honestly not something we set out to build, but we're embracing it because it's incredible. It means you have, you know, tens of thousands of employees rather than 50. And where are you getting most of that feedback? I know there are certain brands that are very active on social and Instagram, have Slack channels, just wondering how things work over there. Email. So Tony Chin Zappos was a really early customer and I, I really loved his book on how to differentiate himself and just build an amazing customer service team. So I did the same thing. I had this really early thought that if you could combine really cool innovative technology with really friendly people on the end of email, that could be a really cool thing. If you're new to the brand, you wouldn't know that. We don't promote that in any way, but we have a brilliant customer service team who have really, really long in-depth chats with our customers. So no one's on any timeline. No one's on any weird pay scale. If a customer wants to chat all day to you, do that. Because the reality is some of them are the most cutting edge people in their fields, whether it's AI or robotics. And again, this idea of encouraging serendipity, you get chatting to your customers and, and eventually they go, oh, hey, I'm, I'm actually leading the design on Dragon X. We should talk about this. That's the stuff that happens. Whereas if you go, hey, we'd like to process your return for you, please fill in this form. <laughs> serendipity never happens. So email is the channel we use, not social. I'm a particularly big admirer of the Volaback relaxation hoodie, which has been described as a wearable isolation tank. It seems like the descriptions that you guys write could almost inspire fan fiction. So I'm not surprised that people are contributing through email and trying to be part of the process. Yeah, the relaxation hoodie was a fascinating one. I mean, it was our first ever product and we really landed on our feet. The first iteration was basically a relatively bright pink hoodie that zipped up over your face and it came with its own pink noise soundtrack. And the essential idea was we used lots of different packs to try and relax you. Now, it did lead to a hoodie that looked crazy and not very many people would wear because not many athletes are going, hey, you know what I need is a pink hoodie that zips up over my face. But because we really went for it and we really committed to form over function, it led to something that looked crazy. John Glazer took it onto the Jimmy Fallon show, and that really helped launch the brand because, as I say, I, I don't like paying for marketing. And for the cost of sending a hoodie to New York, there was a 10-minute slot on a pretty big TV show. The brand just carried on from that. So, yeah, <laughs> you even get some quite famous people giving you feedback. And I think the feedback there was probably, let's not make the hoodie pink. <laughs> let's make it some colors people might want to buy. Well, you know, I did want to ask, are you ever going to offer women's clothing? Not that pink is necessarily a woman's color, but of course it's associated with women. Yeah, it's just been an age and stage thing. So we were going to start it a couple of years ago. Then we got hit by the double whammy of COVID and Brexit. And I read some of those VC documents saying, conserve cash, cash is king. <laughs> now, right, right. now might not be the time to take that risk. But yes, absolutely. I mean, with the line, clothes from the future, 
we're fairly confident the future has women in it and they're going to need clothes too especially if we're going up to space starting a new race (laughs) so yeah and Steve, I also just wanted to ask you about your distribution strategy. So you only sell directly through the Volibac site? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And will that ever change? Not in the near-term future. One of the things that's been absolutely central to the brand, as I talked about, is getting that feedback. And so I really worry about losing that connection to the customers and the idea of like, well, where does that go? Mm. So let's say someone has a cool experience in one of our shirts or one of our jackets, and they bought it at some wholesale store and they have no real connection to us, I feel that's lost information. So my focus really was on how do we channel as much of that back into us as possible. And I think retail fights that strategy quite heavily for no particular benefit. Like you might scale faster, but you might also weaken the brand quicker because we don't do sales and we don't do discounts. We don't do any of the black stuff. And so I do worry about losing control of the brand if I do stuff like that. Sure. I also just wondered, because so many direct-to-consumer brands do end up opening pop-up shops or small brick-and-mortar outlets so that their customers can see their products. And I would think that something like the indestructible puffer that is said to be 15 times stronger than steel, I don't know what the cost is, but I'd like to see and touch that before buying it. So I just wondered if if that's part of the strategy or, again, you feel for some reason that that would not I know. I'm very open to that one. The the irony is, of course, lots and lots of customers have asked for stores. Lots of customers have asked, can we touch the objects? But because of our marketing background, we put a different spin on it. So last year, we did stock in a shop. It just happened to be the most remote store in the world in the middle of the Australian outback. And we filled it with free shirts and it was 1,200 kilometers away from the nearest neighbor. And it was a three-day drive along a sand track. And we put an email out to everyone and said, look, first store, (laughs) free, free shirts if you can get there. But by the way, it's here. And then last week, we launched the first store in the metaverse. So we launched it on Decentraland and we offered up free Mars gear, but we didn't say where the store was. We just said, well, hey, we bought a tiny plot in Decentraland. If you can get yourself to the store first, which was a physically impossible store because it opened up this machine. If you could get yourself there first, find the code, send the code to us. Then you get free Mars gear. But then we, we, we encountered this problem that they had to be able to enter the code onto a page. And so what we did is we made the Mars jacket available, but we put it at $225 million just in case (laughs) someone accidentally paid us $225 million. Of course, no one did. But when the three guys who won entered the code, they got this discount where you saw a line go through $225 million and it went to discount zero. (laughs) (laughs) So so, yes, we will do stores most likely this year. Pop-ups are not the coolest thing in the world, but I do appreciate that people need to be able to touch stuff. So probably San Francisco, LA, New York, London are the most likely locations as that's where most of our customers are based. And given our audience and your customer base, are there any plans to launch an NFT? (laughs) There will be. We're definitely going to be doing more stuff in the metaverse space very, very soon because I just find it so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the idea that there's going to be this this competition or integration between the virtual world and real world. So yes, we're currently building some fairly crazy stuff in that space. We're currently on the hunt for some supercomputers powerful enough to, to process some of the stuff we're working on. But yeah, basically anything that we think is going to define the future, we'll plow pretty heavily into. So yeah, that's a space we're going to be exploring very soon. Not surprised to hear it. So Steve, tell us a little bit more about the size of your company and also because of our audience, exactly where you are in terms of funding and whether you are open to taking any. So we're actually just at the end of taking a round, which depending on how you define it, I suppose it's our series A. The reason we became open to it is because of the way we operate the company, a number of opportunities emerged where we could get very deep into the technology that's going to merge with clothing next. So if you think about this, I think it's the Steve Javetson model of inevitable futures. 
clothes and technology are going to merge. That's not a question. It's just it's just a reality. The the only real question is on time scale. Is it going to happen in the next two years? Unlikely. Will it have happened in a hundred years' time? Definitely. So we had the opportunity to start really investigating, investing in, and interrogating some of the technologies that are going to combine with clothing next and are really going to define the next decade. And we needed cash to do that. So that was the reason behind taking funding. We weren't particularly interested in building a small scale family company running from the garage. I'm really, really profoundly set on influencing what clothing is going to be able to do over the next hundred years. And that requires capital. But what we didn't want to do is make the mistake of betting really heavy on one particular technology. A real mistake here for me would be we go, hey, we're all in on exoskeletons. And the reality is this field is going to be so distributed for a long time. It's going to look a lot like the early computer market. There's going to be a whole series of competing programs and platforms. And you'll have lots of companies who bet heavily on one particular silo. We're not really interested in doing that. We're interested in exploring all at the same time. And so that, that requires capital. So we're at the end of that funding. I mean, if any lunatics are listening and want to write us checks to, 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 to go create robotic clothing, I'm, I'm open to it. How many employees do you have? We're at about 25 right now. So it's still fairly small. Oh, it's, it's, it's a really tiny company. And we're very, very particular about who we employ. So we try and employ very strategically minded people who can think very cleverly about a wide number of spheres. And it's enabled us to stay small. I think one of the challenges as we scale is how do you stay properly innovative? How do you get the innovation out fast? How do you not stagnate? So I spend a huge amount of time reading about the history of innovation. Every company I consider innovative, I've studied their history. And I think it was Brian Chesky, Airbnb, who said, there's there's two wheels and there's one you want to reinvent and one you don't. And the ones you don't want to reinvent is like logistics and finance and all that stuff. And so we've had to bring in really senior people there to run that. But in terms of innovation, you want to reinvent that completely. My personal feeling is it's not been done brilliantly in clothing. It's been done in a really interesting way in fashion. But if you look at the interaction between clothing and science, it's poor. I also just wondered about your relationship with your brother and how closely you're continuing to work if you started this. And he's also continuing to run this with you. The mother of sons, I sort of (laughs) wonder about that relationship. The reality is we couldn't be much closer. We're 42 now and we've worked together since we were 21. So we started our careers together in advertising. We quit together. We got fired from multiple jobs together (laughs) and then started the company together. So we do split the company fairly evenly. And again, we've had some really good mentors and really good advice on that, which is don't double up. You know, divide and conquer the company, decide which bits you're going to run. So he very clearly runs the creative side, the creative output, the clothing. And then my personal passion is thinking about what the next 100 years look like. That's the thing that defines me. But then the reality is I'm subject to all the things that CEOs are subject to. So anything that goes wrong, that lands on my desk. So you often spend a lot of time wanting to think about the next 100 years, but you actually spend a lot of time working on the next one hour. Getting back to the innovation process, for a small company, you have so many products and it seems as if the timing of these product launches must be very tricky because you want to give each product enough space to find its audience. How do you think about launching products and do you look at launching one every quarter? What's the plan? Well, at the moment, the thing we were most profoundly fascinated in was this constant stream of innovation. That's the thing that drives me and my brother. If you said you were going to run a company that was 100x the size, but you only got to launch four products a year, I don't think I'd do that because I think I'd find that quite boring. What we really like is constant innovation. Like the reality is we launch something new every two weeks minimum. 
the way that works is it's, it's kind of much less scientific than you'd imagine. Because of the timescales of production on some of these projects and the, the timescales it takes to actually make these things, some of these projects that are coming out now, we started four years ago. Some of them we started 18 months ago. So it's almost like this very weird queue where they queue up for launch. And that what we did in order to take the pressure off ourselves is classically, if you look at a North Face or Patagonia, they'll do very sensible things like they'll launch t-shirts in summer and jackets in winter. We don't do that. We just launch stuff when it's ready. So if a puffer jacket is ready in August, we'll still launch it because that's when our innovation is ready. But you could definitely say that's a really stupid idea. Or you could say we're talking about something when no one else is talking about it, which is actually quite a clever idea. So the idea is a continual stream of innovation. And even as we dig deeper into other technologies over the next year, you'll continue to see that. That's the company I'm interested in building something where every week or every couple of weeks, wow, there's something new. Now, that's not just because that satisfies me on a creative level, but also, as I say, because I think this market's going to be so split. But at the same time, I think we're going to see so many fascinating mergers between bits of technology we didn't actually think would ever merge together. I feel the desperate need to be working on all of these at the same time, because I think the reality is, let's say you're working on 200 products simultaneously. You're going to discover something in project 52 that has profound implications on project 17. And so that's the strategic reason to be working on so many projects simultaneously. I also just wonder how you think about supply and demand and how you try to anticipate that because your products are so novel in ways. I think it would be hard to know who's going to want to buy the indestructible puffer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And as we've grown, as I say, one, one of the first challenges is trying to predict all of that stuff. At the start of the business, it's a very simple challenge. We were massively capital constrained. So you go to a factory, you go, hey, we've got this tiny amount of cash. What's the most of product X we could make? And they tell you, hey, it's 200 and you make 200 of them. As we grow, we have to have, honestly, solid gut instincts. So a really good example would be we made a t-shirt dyed with black algae, which is going to be a really important shift in how color is made. And you can say fairly confidently, well, if we make a, a black-ish t-shirt or a very dark gray that's made out of algae that isn't $10,000, most people are going to want to buy that t-shirt. Right. Whereas if you make a product like the full metal jacket, which is made out of 11 kilometers of copper, I'm well aware that half the audience are going to go, well, I'll get hit by lightning and die. This is crazy. And the other half <laughs> are going to go, well, I hear copper's COVID resistant and hey, this is really interesting. So I'll look into it you are sucking a finger and putting it in the air. That's the reality. But you can use some general instincts of if I wasn't running this brand, would I be interested in that? Right. And what are your best-selling products? Are they pants and t-shirts that are made in a more responsible way? No. <laughs> Our oh, best-selling really? product is we make something called the 100-year hoodie and it looks like a normal hoodie. It's black, but it's waterproof and it's fireproof and it's windproof. And that's just something that most people can go, yeah, I'd like that. I think one of the interesting things we did early on was we thought that the future of clothing had to perform in a really futuristic way and look really futuristic. The, the analogy I've used before is when Lady Gaga came through and she wore a dress made out of bacon. <laughs> and I think in the early stages of our career here, we're making bacon dresses where lots of people look at the bacon dress, but lots of people also go, well, I'm not going to wear a bacon dress. Right. And so the, the reality, I think, is if you look at where the merger of clothing and technology is going, you're obviously moving towards a point of increasing invisibility. The superhero suit of the future is not going to look like a superhero suit. It's going to look like normal clothes, but it's going to have extraordinary functions. I think that's a reality. Most people don't want to dress like they're an Egyptian queen. <laughs> they want to fit in like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so the, the clothes that blend in, but have extraordinary technology, 
honestly, are the ones that are most likely to sell best. Steve, I want to let you go. And this has been so interesting. But I did want to ask, just because I see this happening so often, if you have any collabs planned and or if you are partnering with any tech companies to build clothing in the future. We are, but it's all secret and behind the scenes. But we'll be talking about all of them over the course of the next year. We've been very, very particular with who we're going to partner with. And for us, it's all about they have to be building absolutely the future in their industry. And so, yeah, we'll be talking more about them, but that's the way we've had to go because otherwise, as I say, you need to raise about five billion and build your own jet propulsion laboratory. So you can't confirm or deny whether SpaceX is one of your partners? I cannot do that. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, thank you so much. Really fun to talk to you. Again, Alex and I are big, big fans of what you're building, and we'll be curious to see how things evolve from here. Thank you ever so much. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Have a great Thanksgiving next week, and we'll see you back here on December 3rd.